go. Man, what a story, huh? Um, maybe you've read that before, maybe you haven't. One of the things that I'm struck with in this story is all of the details telling me what month it was that the king read it and that there was a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. And it just, the narrative slows down and gives us all of these details. Very interesting stuff. And thank you for taking to the time to read it and read it so deliberately and intentionally. Um, as we approach God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Loving God, help us to lean into your word now. Give us grace, Lord, to crush all the defenses we've put up between ourselves and you. Unplug our ears. Drown out the world's clamor that keeps us from hearing your call on our lives. Forgive us for avoiding you and running off to do something, anything that might be easier to take than your challenging word to us. We desperately long to be part of your glorious, exhilarating salvation mission in this world. So speak to us now with a loud voice so that we can be assured that we truly have been with the living God today. All this we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to take us back for a moment, back in time. Uh, I want to take us to a time when we thought comedy movies from the 1980s were actually funny. I noticed this phenomenon when we were excited to share one of these movies with uh, one or two of our boys, and the results were less than spectacular, both for them and for us. Like some of you, my middle-aged friends and I will often reminisce about the good old days and laugh and even howl about funny lines from the days when comedies were what we thought truly funny. But then you go back and you watch them, and the first thing you notice is that these movies absolutely crawl along. They are so slow compared to today's movies. My boys looked like they were staring at paint drying while they watched these movies. The second thing you notice is that we've come a long way in our humor, and this stuff that I laughed about with my friends really isn't that funny or at least as funny as it was when I was a younger person. It's lost a lot of its luster, these films. And time tends to do that, doesn't it? Time, given enough time, everything breaks down. Everything loses its shine, its appeal, or so we might think. Now you would think that after thousands of years, this little story we read in Jeremiah would be a bit like these old 80s comedies. It would have lost its luster. This story in an obscure part of the Bible that only the bravest scholar dares to tread, you'd think it would have finally broken down and we would ignore it. That it would have lost its significance for such an advanced people as ourselves. I mean, think about it. Richard read, 983 words in English. Translated from ancient Hebrew, 
preserved on scrolls by unknown scribes, about a prophet that most people hated, and about a king that no modern history class mentions, who burned a scroll, and then the prophet produced an identical one. The end. What good is this? What's it supposed to mean? Jeremiah offers us no detailed commentary or explanation. Unlike some of the New Testament letters that that sort of posit theology, they give us theology, and then it will add the relevant application, we are left in Jeremiah to try to figure out this one on our own. Why didn't someone come along and include some applications for us at the end of this chapter? Is it about Jeremiah or Baruch or bad kings or pre-modern copy and paste functions? Are we supposed to learn about persistence or preaching or faith or what? Strikingly, it's this story and many stories like it that comprise what the New Testament calls the Holy Scriptures. Now, when we read in the New Testament something about the Scripture or the Scriptures, we think of automatically Paul's letters or the Gospels. But when the New Testament says it, the New Testament's talking about Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the Psalms and Judges. Think about that. These stories that are recorded for us and the details in them are not historical accidents just to intrigue us or to amuse us or even for merely moral instruction, though there is some. This is a holy story. Yes, the one without application or practical tips for improving my life or my marriage. These practical self-improvement strategies are strikingly lacking in the Holy Scriptures as a whole. Now, we would expect the Bible to be full of content like that. That's the content we sort of look for in life. We would want the Bible to be more like an instruction manual for putting together Ikea furniture. Than the way it is, it's repetitive, poetic expressions and narratives that frequently leave us bewildered. What is the deal? But the amazing part to me, the great mystery around these holy scriptures, is that the luster remains. The church continues to open this ancient text and listen to the readings, even the lengthy ones that rob us of longer sermons and more praise songs. There must be more to these texts than simply great stories or moral instruction that evokes the good life. Something else is happening here. Something very different in these Jeremiah and Holy Scripture texts. Something qualitatively different than anything else we encounter in any other text or TED Talk or whatever. So what I want to suggest to us is that this story is a vivid 
real life example of what the Apostle Paul described in 2 Timothy 3. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. They have given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Did you hear my point of emphasis? The subjects of the verbs in this paragraph are the Holy Scriptures and God with the Scriptures. We are strikingly passive in this encounter. Disturbingly so. Because we don't like to be passive in anything. We like to have control and be on top of it. At least I do. But what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy is that this dusty, odd Jeremiah story in the recesses of an overlooked book, that one is here to correct us, prepare us, equip us, instruct us, wake us up, form us from the inside out. On the surface, it looks like a strange story from a bygone world, but it's really not. It's here to transform us, to take charge of our lives, to change us from being this person to being that person. Now, my guess is that not many of you would object to everything I just said. Maybe you would, but probably not. But let's just burrow down a bit deeper, shall we? Western culture, particularly the culture in our own country, has for decades been moving away from any sort of practice of deep or philosophical reflection for our lives, for our humanity. And that reflection that we've been moving away from has as its chief logic or mechanism story, narrative, poetry. And so instead of that stuff, we fixate on the immediate or the immediately practical. What do I need or want in order to have the good life? That might be the only or most basic question people ask of life. That might be the deepest we get. What do I need or want to have the good life? And what do we talk about when we try to answer those that question? We talk about money economic issues. We talk about marriage and sex and parenting and education and entertainment. All of those practical considerations. We want to get all of that right to have the good life balance and to get the good life. And when those practical considerations begin to break down in our lives, we seek out answers for them, sometimes from friends often from TV personalities, definitely from our therapists, and even from the church. And here is the turn that has taken place in the last 
probably 30 years in the church, maybe longer. The church is graciously accommodating this immediately practical impulse that we have. So, in the interest of not messing up your life, pastors teach mainly on behavior modification. Stop messing up, start behaving a different way so that things will go well for you. That's the message. Of course, I'm oversimplifying, but you get the idea. It seems that the more specific about the responsibilities of men, responsibilities of women, of parenting, of being a Christian in the workplace, the more specific we get with the practical, everyday sort of this is how you have a good life kind of message, then the more the crowds will come. All the church needs to do is market themselves in a compelling way and offer practical answers for a pleasant life. Do this and your children will behave and rise up and call you blessed. Do that and you're a real man, etc., etc. And so passages like Jeremiah seem to be rather strange to a generation like that. What good is it? Not too long ago, I was speaking to a pastor of a very large church, and I mentioned to him how great it was that he was preaching a series from the book of Hebrews. Love Hebrews. And his response surprised me. He said that others on his teaching team pushed him to do this series, but for his part, he actually hated preaching from the book of Hebrews. Can you imagine that? Well, the more I listened to his sermons, the more I realized why that was the case. Hebrews almost completely resist the impulse to make everything practical. And instead, Hebrews is drawing us into this complex and rich reality of who God is for us in Jesus and how this reality of God has been interwoven into the story of Israel and indeed our story. Hebrews isn't easy. Hebrews takes deep thought. Hebrews pulls us into this otherness that doesn't make sense in our everyday sort of existence. It lives at the level where we must just simply marvel at the identity of this self-sacrificing God for us. And our response is, just don't leave him. Don't fall away. Hang on to Jesus. How do we do that, Hebrews author? Well, he doesn't give us too many hints. There are a few. Mostly keep gathering together. Mostly listen to God. Take him uh, um, to take him in to our lives through word and sacrament so that our life miraculously is his life in us. That's really it. This internal spirit work of God getting into us and forming us into the people that he's calling us to be. We are remarkably out of control in much of that. But the evangelical church is offering something very different these days. It's offering kind of what Dr. Phil 
offers us. Stop behaving badly, change your mind about yourself and others, start behaving as I've told you to. This seems to be the long and short of it. And who needs Jesus for that? Many people improve their lives quite apart from religion. All right, I can't see a lot of faces, so I don't know, but the ones that I can see, I feel like I've probably waded into deep waters here and you, you may be rolling your eyes. You're waiting for me to offer the disclaimer. But Jason, you know, uh, but give us the other side. Yeah, okay. I know. We live out our faith in the real world. What we do in that practical sense matters. I get it. I get it. You're right. But the Christian faith is not grounded in behavior modification in order to get the life we expect to have. Yes, we do want to kill sin and live to righteousness. Yes, but doing so is dependent upon the life of Christ within us. The Spirit taking the words of Scripture and the sacraments and pulling us into the life of Jesus Christ. It is his encounter with us that produces a conversion of heart and behavior. It's not a collection of self-help techniques sprinkled with some God talk that makes us true saints in the kingdom of God. It is God encountering us. And so, back to Jeremiah, our work in the church is to feed deeply on the words of this text and the visible words of the sacrament in faith so that Christ gets what he wants out of us. We don't gather in church to make sure we get what we need out of him. So did you note the last verse I read from 2 Timothy? It said, God uses it. God uses that scripture to get what he wants. To get what he wants out of us. We don't use scripture to find what we'd like to hear. But we open it reverently with fear and trembling, knowing that God is going to speak. And we must go through a conversion. A conversion that we may not be interested in but the one that we desperately need. We should think about church as a lifetime of training in listening to God. In listening to God speak to us in these words. We call them holy words, not because they possess magic to be controlled by anyone who learns the potions, but rather because God uses them. God takes them up and he addresses us. He addresses you. And he calls us to a conversion of sense every time we hear them. And that's what was so shocking about Jehoiakim, the king, tearing up the scroll. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. It's shocking. Because the words on the scroll were clearly more than just words. 
They were words from God. They were God's personal address to the king. And how else shall we respond to God except to humble ourselves and be converted yet again? Every Sunday morning, every time we open this book is an opportunity to be transformed, to be converted, even if we are less than aware of what's happening to us. See, it's God doing his work. Sometimes he's doing it even without our practical applications and considerations. He is forming us inside with the life of Christ. He's doing what he wants with it. True story. Pastor was called away from his church to go serve at another one. On his last Sunday there, a gentleman approached him with tears in his eyes. And the gentleman said, um, I cannot remember, can't tell you about one sermon that you've preached over the last five years. I'm sure that was encouraging for the guy to hear. But he said, he went on to say, all I can say is that I'm different today than I was five years ago. Now, see, that's the work of God through his word. The quiet, subtle, unseen work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. It does its work to us. And we simply keep listening, keep following, keep loving. And it will not fail. If we ignore him for a time, if we burn the scroll, if we allow our hearts to be shaped more by Fox News or CNN, then Jeremiah, the power of God, will not dissipate. It will not be shunned. It will not be overcome. We may shut our ears off to his voice, but God will always be speaking, calling, warning, promising. It is living and active because it is God's word, and it is God's work for you today. Now, more than ever in the life of in town, is the time to get formed anew by word and sacrament. You're asking a lot of questions right now. Who are we? What shall we become? How will we get there? Where is there anyway? Where is our home? Who is our family? All good questions. The answers may not be immediate, but this doesn't mean God isn't speaking or that there's no way forward. The work for us right now is to rest in his faithful love for us and to attune our ears to hear him and follow where he leads. Our work is the liturgy, is loving our sisters and brothers sacrificially and generously and faithfully as individuals engaging in morning and evening prayer. Yes, there are other conversations to be had. There are other discussions that we need. But at the core, we are coming before this scroll, the very words of God, this liturgical work of word and sacrament, and we have our ears wide open 
or what God has for us. And at times like this in the church, we are so tempted to scheme, to scheme and outmaneuver in order to get our way. But God is pleased with children who are unified in love with him and each other around word and sacrament. That is the path that's open to us. This is the way we get home. This is the way we find our place in rest in Christ. And the question is, do we believe God enough to listen and follow him? Some of you will remember when JFK Jr. Uh, passed away a number of years ago. Uh, he was flying a plane. He had experience as a pilot and he went down off the New England coast. Um, I had some pilot friends at the church where I was serving at the time, and all of them said the exact same thing after the news broke. Spatial disorientation was the cause. Vertigo. Sometimes when it's hard to see, a pilot is faced with a crisis point. Will I trust my instruments that are telling me I need to go up? Or will I trust my own sense of where the plane is in relation to the ground or the water? And will I put myself at risk? And JFK apparently did not trust his instruments because he thought he was going up and he was actually going down. And that's what vertigo does. Will we have our ears and our hearts open to word and sacrament gathered together and trust these strange, unusual, odd instruments that form us and shape us to be God's people in the world? Or will we ignore him? That's the question we face today. Amen.